Why Always Us is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bets with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to Why Always Us, a Manchester City podcast from The Athletic. If you thought the shutdown of the Premier League and Football League was going to stop us, then you've got another thing coming because we're here for another week to talk City. I'm David Mooney. With me this week again is Jack Pete Brook and James Horncastle. There's plenty of stuff still going up at The Athletic and we're going to continue to make Why Always Us during the break. So uh, just to give you a bit of a flavour, Jack, what have you been working on this week? So I did two podcasts yesterday. I hosted our Tottenham podcast, which I always enjoy doing. And then I was a guest on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, talking about a story I just did on Charlton Athletic. Uh, And then I've been working on some other features, uh, kind of long term stuff, which you'll hopefully see on The Athletic soon enough. Lovely stuff. And uh, James, we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about this uh, shortly, but you've recently interviewed Ed and Jacko, haven't you? What's, uh, what, what's, that, uh, what's that like? No, it was great. Um, Edin's uh, a good talker. Um, he's obviously, uh, well, he's 34 today. Um, it's his birthday. Um, so he's, he's, I think, not the peak of his powers, but certainly um, aware of everything he's achieved, where he wants to uh, still go, um, and has quite the body of work um, to talk about as well. So um, I just always find him a very engaging person to sit down and, and analyze the game with or just talk about some of the kind of things that footballers usually kind of uh, kind of freeze whenever they're asked about. I think he's, he's at a, a place in his career where uh, nothing's, nothing's off limits, which is good. Lovely stuff. Uh, well, you can get those and all of our podcasts ad-free by signing up to The Athletic, and you can get a 40% discount now by using the code MANCITYPOD. Uh, now, not a lot has been happening on the football front uh, in the last week or so, and we've all been speculating how the Premier League will finish, given the current coronavirus outbreak that's brought a halt to everything. Um, there's also the news uh, today, uh, Jack, that uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport are not going to be hearing cases anytime soon either, uh, which means that they're not likely to hear City's case of uh, the Champions League ban uh, for next season. So what, what do you make of the situation? Yeah, it just shows, doesn't it, how everything is very much on hold at the moment across football. Um, I think everything really hinges on this big UEFA meeting, which is happening today, Tuesday, um, between all the leagues, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Like Clearly, I mean, we, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but however it does turn out, every single European league has to be in sync, more or less, because otherwise the whole, you know, the whole delicate system, which makes up the Champions League will fall apart. It's it's kind of an interesting one because, I mean, who, who can say what will happen? Because there might not be a Champions League for quite some time yet. Yeah, well, I think if, when there is football, there will be the Champions League and there's a Champions League to get finished for this season, which I, I, I'm sure will somehow get finished. I don't know when or how. And then, of course, there'll be the Champions League next season. But... I'm guessing here, but I imagine that we'll see basically no football for quite some time and then quite a lot of football in strange circumstances squeezed in over the summer or maybe even the late summer. And then the next season will hopefully kick off, you know, I don't know, September, October, November. Nobody really knows, but I imagine it will look more like that than like anything else. Do you think, Jack, that there could be uh, legal implications if, if if City's case isn't heard by Cass by the time that the next season comes around and they are still banned? That's a really good question. Honestly, I hadn't even thought of that. But clearly, I mean, that is one of many, many, many moving parts or potential issues, many of which have legal, you know, legal complications, which is going to make it even harder for UEFA. I mean, God knows what this is going to mean for the ca- the Cass case or whether City can compete. But, I mean, there's just so much to sort out that I don't really know what the answer's going to be. James, how's it being viewed on the continent at the moment? Well, I think Jack's absolutely right to say that there's so much uncertainty at the moment. Um, I think a lot of the leagues are looking at um, uh, getting back uh, to business, i.e. football being played at the beginning of May. 
Um, but you know, we're already seeing, for example, in Italy, um, this the, the date of May second was floated. That's now been put back to May 9th. Um, and so it's still very much a situation that's kind of hostage to events, really. And um, things keep changing on a hourly, daily basis. Um, and I think it's it's very difficult to actually settle on a date other than um, essentially just to say um, this is when we're next going to review things. It buys people a little bit of time. I don't think we need to be in a, a, in a rush um, to, to settle on a date and then start selling tickets again when, of course, we, we all don't know um, whether the coronavirus situation in, in the UK and Italy and across the world will have improved by then. Um, everything seems to be very staggered. There seems to be a lag everywhere, which makes it very difficult then to all maybe yeah, come back at the same time, unless there's a kind of resting period um, at some stage. So um, it's it's unprecedented, and I, I think it's it's something that we just have to monitor on a on a daily basis. I'd say the the UK has been. I'd say a lot of us around here have been speculating about how we can end the Premier League season, how the Football League season can end. Whether it's you know playing games behind closed doors when think when the situation's improved, whether it's uh, you know maybe a bigger Premier League next season. You promote teams but don't relegate any, and and kind of sort it out with bigger relegation zones the year after. Um, has there been any idea how the Italian league's going to sort all this out? <laughs> Well, I mean, they uh, have have talked about um, uh, blending two seasons into one, um, which which sounds crazy. Um, uh, they they have also looked at, for example, expanding an already bloated league from from twenty teams to twenty two teams. Um, and you know, we've seen a variety of things put on the table, um, just in case, for example we get to a stage where they can't play the remind, re- remaining 12 match days. Um, you know, that we're, we're, I think we've seen this in the Champions Leagues. Some of the the ideas put on the table um, to have a condensed, um, essentially, playoff um, series um, involving uh, the teams in contention for the, the league title, teams in contention for the for Champions League, Europa League, and teams looking to, to, to stay up. Um, so I think the playoff system is, in some respect, a, a last resort, um, purely because it's not really satisfactory in terms of finding a, a format which, which, for example, you might have a team like Atalanta who yeah, seem to have fourth place sewn up um, and Champions League football guaranteed again next season, all of a sudden having to contest uh, for that place again with Roma, who are considerably far behind. Likewise, teams down the bottom of the, the league who are safe now and have a bit of a cushion, but teams like Fiorentino, Udinese, Torino being all of a sudden brought into a relegation playoff. So I think that is why you, you see the position of the league, and I imagine this is true of the Premier League as well, where they say, uh, let's try and get to a stage where we can complete the season uh, and finish all the outstanding fixtures um, that there are at the moment, which, you know, as Jack was alluding to earlier, means we're going to have a very a lot of football in a very compressed period of time. I think in Italy, they were talking about nine Sundays, three midweek rounds, and then you'll probably have um, some European football um, thrown into that if we get to a stage where we can actually have football again. Just finally on this, Jack, from, uh, from a City point of view... Um... I, I've been thinking more and more about this in in, in recent uh, weeks about the the potential idea of the of the Premier League season being scrapped, which I think is now quite low on the uh, on the list of possibilities. Um, but I, I, all of a sudden, I don't want it to happen because it means that Aguero loses his goals record. Uh, City will lose the League Cup again, which they've made their own in the last few years. And on top of all of that, City are not one missed penalty away from the most consecutive Premier League missed penalties. I didn't know that last one. That's a great one. Yeah, it's just like you can't, you cannot, you know, you cannot pretend like all this football hasn't happened. We've had tons of football this year. We've had, you know, uh, eighty what eighty five percent of a full season, I think, something like that. Um, we, you know, I, I can see. I think the arguments for scrapping the season are astonishingly self serving, and it would be. It's just it's so obviously wrong on like a really instinctive moral level to just wipe all of this and then act as if it never happened. 
Exactly. Now, uh, James, earlier on we mentioned that you've uh, recently interviewed Edin Dzeko. He's, uh, as, as me and Jack would say, he's a proper city hero. Um, so, I mean, I mean, in, in terms of uh, of your memories, Jack, to start with, let's let's delve into the nostalgia base that we've got. And uh, what, what what does he mean to City? He means an awful lot, doesn't he? He was so. As a City fan, I loved him. I thought that he. I, I loved how like. His ability to score really important goals, I think, was what really stood out more than anything else. Uh, obviously, the header against QPR, which has been kind of forgotten because of the Aguero winner. But, you know, without that, there wouldn't have been an Aguero winner. So many big games where he stood up. West Brom away, October 2012, we scored those two. City had been down to 10 men for the whole game. Uh, I remember, uh, I mean, this is slightly different, but in August 2011, he scored four goals at White Hart Lane. Two of them were absolutely brilliant. He scored two goals in the 6-1. Um, he was fantastic in the 13-14 Premier League run-in, scored at Hull, scored at Palace, two at Everton. And in terms of like that reliability for digging out a goal so any in any way he could he could come up with when the City needed it most, he was incredible. Like he was obviously less, you know, you can say he's less talented than someone like Aguero, but he, his capacity to score different types of goals, kind of left foot, right foot, outside of the box, header, kind of ugly goals, goals where he... You know, he kind of he he has this kind of capacity for imaginative finishing. You know what I mean? Like um, sticking out a leg, just getting just enough on the ball. Sometimes it looks really ugly, and often he would look terrible. Like he had he probably had more bad games in City than good ones, if we're honest. But the goals record, and particularly like the types of goal and the and when the goals came. Incredible. I just want to uh, to bring to you seven words, Jack. Uh, you you tweeted this after Jacko's first goal at City. So this is what love feels like. Yeah. So this was back when my my Twitter account was a bit more partisan than it now is. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, it, it, it was my Twitter a Man City fan account almost. I think I um, follow, yeah. I followed you for that reason, mate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so Dzeko had obviously signed for big money from Wolfsburg in January 2011, and he's taken a little while to settle settle in, because he does look, like I said, he looks bad quite a lot of the time, and his first few weeks at City, he didn't look good, he looked he looked clumsy, he looked a bit slow, the ball bounced off him, and then he scored that really nice goal at Ewood Park, which is a really big win for City, because, you know, they were fighting, they weren't going to win the league that year, but they had to secure Champions League qualification, uh, and he just kind of took the ball down in the box. The ball was bouncing around. He took an extra half second. Like it was kind of he took his time over it in a way that showed that he's a top player. And then bent the ball into the into the corner of the net. And yeah, and I I did that, that stupid tweet about how, how much <laughs> I, about how much I loved him. But it's true, I did. And a lot of City fans, I think, felt the same because also remember that. Jeco joined in January 2011, six months before Aguero. So City had signed top, top players because obviously summer 2010, Yaya Toure, David Silva and those guys. But they hadn't signed... I mean, I know they had Tevez and Adebayor, but they didn't sign like a top striker from abroad, if you know what I mean. Like they hadn't signed... To sign a number nine from a foreign league who'd scored tons of goals and been brilliant in Bundesliga was like a slightly different signing and all the other big teams really wanted Jeco as well. So it felt kind of exciting for City to have Jeco. At that time, and uh, yeah, I, I like a lot of City fans. I took to him quickly. James, I want to get uh, into what he's like because I, I thought you got quite a quite a, a, an insight into his mentality uh, when you spoke to him. Yeah, I mean, he's a very determined character, um, but at the same time, can be quite lighthearted and, and and joke around. But I think one of the things that I've experienced watching him in Italy is is how I mean, he's he's in his mid thirties now. He joined Roma when he was thirty. And he's got that kind of gravitas, that ability to basically chew chew other players out on the pitch in terms of if he doesn't if he doesn't think they're giving him the right service, if he thinks their attitude is wrong, um, he has this. Uh, I think he has got a winning mentality, and I, you know I think we'll maybe talk about this later if we talk about Mancini. But not a lot of City players necessarily had that. Not a lot of Roma players had that, um, and he was able to kind of bring that um, to the table. It was kind of curious when he when he joined Roma because I think he joined at the same time as Juventus signed Mario Mandzukic, who uh, essentially just has uh, this image of not not like a Bond villain, but the kind of henchman of a of a Bond <laughs> villain who does who doesn't really say much, but is just really aggressive and kind of nasty. 
Um, and Jekko was was kind of presented as the opposite, as someone who's quite quiet, quite soft, quite introverted. And certainly over time, he I don't know whether this is just experience, but has certainly become a leader um, for, for, for that team. And uh, yeah, he speaks like a captain now. Um, and I, I think yeah, he has to. Um, he's, he's replaced um, two iconic players um, at Roma in Francesco Totti and Daniel De Rossi. And with that comes kind of great responsibility. You can't hide from the, the cameras when things go wrong. You can't shirk responsibility. You have to front up. And he's become a very good um, kind of talker, someone who's a good bridge, really, between the older and the young players. I mean, it's it's funny how, you know, Roma's spite, the leadership at Roma now is essentially the guys who helped City win the title, which is Alexander Kolarov and, and Edin Dzeko. They, they are the two guys that the, that the young players look to in the dressing room for, for experience, for advice. And uh, from that, it's just a, a it's it's a rich well to draw draw from whenever you uh, whenever you get the chance to speak to him. Now, Jack, I can't uh, I can't let a mention of Alexander Kolarov not uh, bring up. A, I think again, it was a tweet of yours uh, where I, I think you commented on um, City fans used to hang a banner that said uh, something like um, "We we dream of playing in this shirt today. God chose you. Play like we dream." And you described Kolarov as the as the player that played like you like we did in our dreams, hitting it from everywhere. Yeah, Kolarov was great fun, wasn't he? It's funny, like <laughs> a bit like Jekko. Like Jekko used to wind me up quite a lot, if I'm honest, and Kolarov even more so. Like Kolarov was very. If we're, I mean, if we're honest, Kolarov was really inconsistent and wasn't really that fussed about defending. But he just played as if he was having fun. He played as if he was playing on FIFA. You know, get the ball in a bit of space, hold down square see what happens next. And, <laughs> there, um, there was a moment in the FA Cup final, uh, City were winning 1-0 against Stoke and he had the ball by the corner flag, it was about the 92nd minute or something like that and we're, we're all in the crowd going, just hold it by the corner and he he, he has a go at, at goal from the narrowest of angles, clearly thinking, if this goes in, I will be a hero. Exactly and that's what you want to see, isn't it? It's like there's so much, Particularly nowadays with City, it's everything that City do on the pitch, and obviously it's incredibly successful. But everything City do is so mapped out and pre-planned, and everything. To have a player who's just like "fuck it, I'm just going to shoot" is actually quite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can say that on this podcast. Is is fun? Like it's quite. Um, it was fun to watch him, even though it was infuriating. And he's got some great goals. He's got some great goals for City over the years. In terms of uh, of him and Jacko in in Italy, uh, James, have they reinvented themselves from from City? Then in that case. Uh, I mean, in in Kolarov's case, he he obviously had played in Italy before. He came he came from Lazio, um, so I mean that takes some stones um, to <laughs> to go back to Italy and play for their biggest rivals. Um, I mean, I don't think they've necessarily reinvented themselves. I mean, what I would say is it's quite interesting listening to Jack about uh, uh, where Jekyll was in his sort of player development when he he came to Man City. Obviously, he'd won the league with Wolfsburg. He'd been Bundesliga top scorer. Um, but he was still maybe a little bit rough around the edges and needed polishing. And certainly the player who got to Italy, who didn't settle immediately, just as he didn't when he went to Wolfsburg, just as he didn't when he went to Man City. Um, Dzeko now in Italy is, is considered someone who is so refined, um, so the finished article, that um, people look at it and think this would be a player that maybe had he had he remained at City, Pep Guardiola would have liked to have, have worked with because there's some aspects of his game that are reminiscent of Robert Lewandowski. You know, he's two-footed, he likes to come short, he likes to play others in. He's actually quite creative. He's got 36 assists, I think, during his time in, in, in Serie A, which is a lot for a, a centre-forward who's also, you know, when he won the, the scoring crown in Serie A with 29 goals, has scored a lot of goals. You know, he's one of the, only a, a, a few, less than a less than, what, we're talking about seven players who've scored 100 league goals um, for, for Roma over the course of their, their history, and he's he's one of them. So he is seen as, as very much a complete striker. Um, Kolarov, <laughs> again, has that kind of uh, court jester, jokerish kind of figure that he had at City, although, um, again, he is, he, he does conform to this kind of slightly Balkan Yugoslav, very hard, uh, I'll call it how I see it uh, and tell you journalists that you're all idiots who don't understand football 
Um, yeah, he, he, he regularly does that. Um, but I mean, these guys have become, I mean, I, I put this out in the article, I put it out on Twitter yesterday, that Dzeko is, is considered in, in Rome to be the best, the best striker that a lot of the fans have seen in their in their lifetime and you know people will point to Gabriel Battistuta and 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 his part in when Roma last won the league title but you know that was Battistuta who was just coming to the end of his his prime entering a decline he only did it there for one season and they, they only wanted him to do it for one season and he did it because he won the league title whereas Dzeko has done it over what four or five years now um help the team reach the Champions League semi-final, which is the closest that that fan base has really felt to winning um, uh, the Scudetto since then. And he's just seen as someone who's part who's part of the furniture, which is really difficult to be when you you play at a club where player trading is, is so much of, so much a part of what they do. He's the last player standing from the from the players who joined um, back when he did. So. It's um, in, in that sense, I suppose his his reputation has has been further enhanced. I think he, he probably deserves more credit uh, within the kind of generation of strikers that he's he's come from, and maybe had he played for clubs which are, I wouldn't say bigger, but certainly uh, have that feel of being more prestigious, part of the old establishment, rather than playing for Wolfsburg, Man City, and, and Roma, he his standing would be that little bit higher in the game than it is at the moment. I was going to ask on that front, Jack, do you, do you think he's underappreciated for what he did at City? I think so, yeah. I think he's I think he's kind of unlucky in the sense that City signed him just before they signed Aguero, and I don't think either of them are very easy players to play with. Like, they never really... I think the problem is that they never really formed a very good partnership for City, to be honest. Like, they're both... They both want to be the main man who scores all the goals, um, and they like. It didn't feel like they had that good a connection. Like Aguero, I think played better with Tevez, who's more selfless, and Negredo, who's more selfless, than he did with Jeco. And Jeco was like the best wild card Plan B substitute I've ever seen at City as someone you could chuck on and make something happen. But he couldn't really form that partnership with Aguero, and I think that's ultimately what did for him. I mean, that's why he kind of faded a little bit under Pellegrini. And I feel like maybe that was the problem. Like, maybe if City hadn't signed Aguero, Dzeko would have gone on to score 200 goals for City. I mean, he probably wouldn't have been quite as prolific because Aguero, as we know, is an absolute goal machine. But I think that has kind of affected him. Maybe if he played... So I think City... Maybe City wasn't exactly the right club for him over a kind of medium-term view. And perhaps if he'd been somewhere else, who, a team that could really build around him where he could have been the main man, he might have gone on to have that kind of, you know, like James was saying, like a slightly more you know, a sort of bigger reputation than he'd had. And I think that killed, I think that upset him as well, because you could tell from interviews with him when he was at City that he wanted to be the main man. And he, he, was, he wasn't happy, like, being the guy they always turned to in a crisis who would score a goal. And he was fantastic at it. But I think he always wanted to be, you know, the guy that plays every single game and is the number one player of the club. And he has actually got, he has got that now at Roma. So in that sense, he's got what he was looking for. James, one thing I took from from your interview that I genuinely didn't realise as a City fan is that he is practically ambidextrous, that left foot, right foot, it's the same. And when I watched him for City, I always used to think, oh, it was on his left foot. And when I think about it back now, there's so many chances that he just stroked home with his left foot. One of the goals that Jack was talking about at Spurs in, in 2011 from outside the box, he just bent it into the top corner, passed it into the top corner with his left foot. Yeah, I mean, looking at the goals that we we analysed with him in that that article, I think three of the four are with his quote unquote weaker foot. Um, and yeah, given how emphatic and sensational some of those strikes are, you would never think it. Um, and it's it's not like you can fluke some of those volleys um, uh, with a a foot that you consider to be you know not worth yeah not worth standing on. Um, so that's something that he'd, he'd always worked on just because I think that I, what I really like when you talk to sort of kind of elite athletes is how, um, they're so, they can be come across as so confident about something. So he was so confident with his other foot. He was like, well, what's the point on working on that then? I can, I, I just know what I get, I can get from that foot. So I might as well work on this other one. Um, and I think certainly that is one of the reasons why, 
uh, at Roma, he is, he's, he's, they call him the terminal because kind of everything goes through him. Um, it's, it's, it's not just uh, the goals, it's all of their attacking play. And, uh, yeah, that's that was quite a quite a big decision for them to make um, when you realise that the guy who'd been playing in that position for Roma for not just the last few seasons, but essentially twenty years, was Francesco Totti. Um, yeah, I, I think there was there was always going to be the risk that uh, anyone who is technically slightly deficient, um, that contrast would be really stark, either playing alongside or, or next to or replacing. Totti. And instead, it doesn't really jar um, at the moment. Of course, he can't do a lot of the things that Totti um, could do, but certainly in terms of being ambidextrous, in terms of having every kind of finish, in terms of being able to head, score with his left, score with his right, score from outside the area, you know, be that kind of penalty box poacher. Um, he really does does have it all. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually really interesting going through the thought process of some of those finishes where you know, we make assumptions uh, from uh, from the press box or from our, our couch at home or, or from the stands as, as season ticket holders. And in actual fact, some of the things that we think are going through their heads just, you know, are the last thing they're thinking. Um, and yeah, I think it's it was it was great to kind of get an insight into that into that process, really. Now, Jack, it's time to uh, flag down a black cab and, and head over to Nostalgia Road because uh, I want to know you about your favourite uh, Eddie Jacko goals. Okay, so quick list. I'm going to go for the two at Tottenham, August 2011. Uh, the towering far post header where Nasri puts the cross over his head and he's like staggering backwards away from Yunus Kabul and then gets enough power to propel the ball back over Brad Friedel. Um, the left-footed kind of clip, curler, finesse, whatever you want to call it, also in that same game. Um, I'm going to go for... West Brom away, uh, counter-attack, win the game at the end, October 2012, swept into the bottom corner. I'm going to go for both the goals in the 6-1 because it's the 6-1. <laughs> um, Everton away, 2014, uh, basically the game that put City in pole position to win the Premier League title. There's a near-post header and a near-post that game. Captain. That game, he is. He spent more of that game lying down on the floor. I know, yeah. Feigning injury than anything else. That that was fantastic. <laughs> that, that was. I've I've never seen anybody like make a complete mockery of the idea of just killing the game by just lying down and the referee standing yeah. over and going, "Just get up, come on, get up." And he's going, that, "No." <laughs> that was astonishingly good. No, November twenty twelve, there was like a, a late winner against Tottenham at home. A left, I think it was a left foot volley from a chip David Silver ball over the top. Which was fantastic. Uh, the the three nil old. Lots of these are just tap-ins, but they're just really really good tap-ins. And we, he kind of he had this ability to kind of ghost into a position and tap the ball in. When you thought, how on earth has he got there? Like, how did nobody stop? See, how did nobody see him? Like, the guy's six foot five. Like in the, <laughs> you know, when when City won three nil at Old Trafford in the David Moyes season, the fan, that was one of City's best ever Old Trafford performances. Scored a scored a good tap-in in that game. Uh, March 2014 when City won 2-0 at Hull which was a really important win on the way to the title and I think they had uh, Dimichelis and Javi Garcia at centre-back and Dzeko and David Silva were phenomenal that day and Dzeko scored again that game uh, two against Aris Salonica in the Europa League in 2011 quite early on in Dzeko's career <laughs> both kind of swept into the bottom corner really really nice finishes um, I mean I could do this all day but I've actually got some other calls I need to do for other stories this, this was that, it was definitely true love this wasn't it it was true love yeah, also, this was like a time in my life when I watched... Because this, bef- this was like early on in my journalism career when I was didn't do quite as much like match reporting. And it was early on in like the City Abu Dhabi era. So this was like the time in my life when I went to the most City games, would watch every single City game. And for various different reasons now, it's like, you know, I was still I still classify myself as a City fan, but I don't, I don't go to that many games as a fan. I probably do one a season. And I won't like religiously watch every single City game on telly that I can't go to because I'm often at other games or whatever else. Um, so my my knowledge of City from about 2006 to about 2014 is much much better than it is over the last six years. Like I couldn't I couldn't really tell you so much about you know every single game City played under Guardiola whereas I think I could tell you about every single game City played under Mancini <laughs> well uh, we're going to come on to him shortly one final point I want to make about uh, Jack and I don't know if this is something that I should admit to uh, on a podcast but I'm going to do it anyway um, 
I still to this day when I am playing FIFA or when I'm playing Pro Evo and I, I score a particularly good goal, I do um, sometimes if I'm if I'm feeling in the mood. It's been a, it's been a, a, a game where I have been you know on the back foot and I've just nicked it or I've, I've pulled level late on. I do the Jeco celebration that the, the arms <laughs> straight out. Um, fingertips wide as they can go elbows bending pointing towards your face and just kind of yes that's that that was my goal do you know what i mean do you know which one i mean amazing yeah yeah i love it this athletic podcast is brought to you in association with stitch fix an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well to get started go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style budget size and shape and your clothing needs and wants a personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing each hand picked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands including established names and up-and-coming designers try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe you can then pay for what you love and send the rest back for your stylist's time you pay a charge of just 10 pounds which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy remember you try before you buy at home delivery and returns are free both ways and you don't need a subscription to sign up stitch fix allows you to save time because we do the shopping for you and you'll enjoy top styling tips from our experts get started with stitch fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now that's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x.co.uk forward slash athletic uh, right so we're going to move on to uh, you mentioned Roberto Mancini there Jack um, he he changed everything at City I think he's he's one of the people that, that again possibly doesn't get the credit he deserves now for changing the culture at the club do you agree? Yeah completely I think Mancini was a, such an important part of the City story in the Abu Dhabi era um, in terms of yeah like giving City that kind of elite winning mentality which they'd never had before and turning them from Mark Hughes who into a fairly if we're honest like overpaid shambles into a proper winning team that won that you know that won the FA Cup in the Premier League and that played in the Champions League and I think City fans will always really value the transformation that Mancini brought through his his mentality and his approach and his experience and all that stuff that Hughes just couldn't couldn't deliver and he did it all with a kind of he did it all with this kind. With he had this, he had this charisma. He had this winning charisma, and he also had this real, like, performative theatrical sense. Uh, you know, wearing the city scarf, his relationship with the fans, getting into arguments with other managers, getting into arguments with Ferguson, calling out Tevez, all that stuff. And I think city fans, city fans, really, really took to that. I think he was exactly, he was exactly the right manager at the right time, and he. If he hadn't had that same kind of my way, my way or go away sort of personality, that kind of intensity and intensity and focus and like uh, charisma, it wouldn't really have worked. But he, he had all those right personal ingredients to be the perfect man for what City were looking for. James, he's now Italy manager. What's what's his reputation like uh, in Italy? Well, Roberto like has this reputation as being the guy who wins when no one can win. Um, yeah, that was true uh, as a player um, at, at Sampdoria, for example, who had never won a league title and haven't won a league title since. It was true at Lazio, who hadn't won a league title since 1974, um, when he moved with Sven um, and ended up winning it at the beginning of this uh, this century. And also, you look at what happened at Inter when he he became a coach. You know, Inter hadn't won the league in eighteen years. Um, okay, uh, people you know, point out that uh, the first one was given to them uh, by a tribunal after the Calciopoli scandal. Um, but I think, as with City, um, if you talk to any of the, the the players who were part of that Inter side that went on to win the treble under Jose Mourinho. Um, they say that this began with Roberto Mancini. It began with the, the mentality shift that he inaugurated at the club, the culture that he he, he kind of imposed. Um, and that was a very solid foundation on which they built for years and years and years. Um, and I just find it curious how, how, how after City, um, he we all kind of figure out what his next step was. Um, and it felt that he would go on to manage a PSG or a Monaco under, you know, kind of when Rebelovlev was spending millions and millions and millions. 
um, because he did have this kind of image of this kind of wealth manager, um, I suppose. And, and that, that was always used as kind of a bit of a stick to beat him in terms of um, look at this kind of um, jolly-come-lately upstart ex-player who hasn't had to go up through the, the lower leagues or, or coach smaller clubs. He's always got big jobs. He's always had owners who've had a lot of money. A bit like how people assess Zinedine Zidane at Real Madrid. It's like, well, how good really is this guy as a manager? But I think that track record of winning where people just don't usually win um, has has always kind of distinguished him. I think his career choices, unfortunately, Sin City, um, be it Galatasaray, Zenit, going to Inter when they were kind of under an FFP settlement agreement, and didn't have an owner who was really kind of willing to uh, to spend a lot of money or could spend a lot of money. Um, it meant his reputation. I think he he began to become this kind of wilderness figure, really, um, coaching in yeah for big clubs, but in backwater leagues. Um, and uh, I think only now with Italy, um, and it's in some respects a bit of a shame that the the, the Euros is. Uh, will be suspended is that yeah he he's really kind of found that groove again uh, winning every every game through qualifying um yeah winning winning is all that matters but they are trying to play a stylish brand of football and, and doing what Mancini's always done which is to give kids precocious kids like the one he was um a chance and um he's got this really kind of abrasive charm um where you know he's he's never five minutes away never more than five minutes away from blowing up in your face and basically yeah i remember joey barton telling me that uh, when he got sent off in that final game um uh, against against city um in in the aguero goal um, he was walking down the tunnel and stayed in the tunnel and he's just hearing Mancini on the sidelines basically cussing out every single one of those City players who then, <laughs> <laughs> within moments later, you know, win the league in the most dramatic circumstances that we've ever seen in the Premier League. So, um, you know, he's got that kind of dandy-ish but kind of abrasive charm, which I think makes him such a captivating, captivating figure to follow. Jack, can can you understand why I still to this day say he's my favourite City manager, despite everything that Pep's teams have done in in the last couple of years, despite you know the the entertaining football, the Keegan years, that sort of thing. It, it's it's always Mancini that I go back to. Yeah, I completely understand that. I think that you know, obviously Guardiola, you know, obviously Guardiola is a better manager, has achieved far more at City, but I think there is something special about being the first manager to win. Like I think that you know the heart. In terms of the transformation of the club, I think that's hugely important. I also think he's so. I think James is right when he says abrasive charm. There's something. There's something quite. F- Maybe it's the flaws in Mancini that make him attractive. I don't know, but there he had a kind of. I felt like he represented the club, in a way, and kind of, in in a way that fans could really buy into, in a way that isn't so true as Guardiola. I think Guardiola, for all his for all his brilliance at his job does leave people quite cold sometimes. Like, he is an emotional guy and he loves football, but, and he does, you know, he does say the right things when it comes to supporting City, but I think people know that he's, he is there, he's there to kind of execute his brilliant master plan, which is amazing, but with Mancini, I felt like there was just a lot more, there's a lot more of a sense of battle to it, maybe that's what I'm getting, trying to get at. There was a lot more of a sense of, you know, I don't know if this is going to work out, and it was hard, and it was a massive slog a lot of the time, and, you know, the, at the start of the Mancini era, people didn't really know if it was going to work out. People thought, you know, maybe you'll do it for 18 months and they'll get Gus Hiddink or whoever else, Carlo Ancelotti or Mourinho in. Um, so I think that that kind of, the fact that he managed to overcome so much makes him such an attractive figure, I think. And it, that's what's really won the fans over to him rather than Guardiola, who's just a kind of a genius, yeah, like a tactical genius who who's executing this incredibly difficult project or, or that is kind of much, you know, much more of an intellectual project than than Mancini's style of coaching, but maybe leaves people a little bit cold. James, um, he his Champions League record was always a stick to beat him with at, at, at City. What's uh, what's the opinion of him in, in European competition or, or, or on the continent? It remains the same. I mean, he hasn't really had uh, that much of an opportunity to change that um, since since leaving Manchester City because um, aside from knocking Antonio Conte's Juventus out of the group stages of, of the Champions League when he was at Galatasaray, 
I haven't really seen him coach a, a top club in that competition. Um, you know, Inter weren't competing in it uh, when he was there. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that was something that, for example, when uh, Inter decided to make the coaching change in, in his first spell um, at San Siro, it was because, look, we win, we dominate the league um, every year. They won it um, five seasons in a row between Mancini and uh and, and Mourinho and they signed Mourinho because he was the guy who could deliver the Champions League um, and and that was the last that was the last thing that the Moratti family at Inter wanted to do because they hadn't won it in more than 40 years just as City hadn't won the league in more than 40 years when Mancini went, uh, went there so you know it's still something that I think uh, he'd like to correct but I think the, 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 when he accepted the Italy job he realised it was the best job he could get um, I, I don't think there were other, and this is this was part of um, Danny Taylor's column um, at the weekend. Uh, it's it's kind of curious that this guy who's won so much um, wasn't really getting other opportunities in top leagues um, to, to to maybe put that right. So, you know, perhaps I think yeah, he's st- he's still a young guy. He started coaching very very early. Um, yeah, maybe that opportunity will come back around. Uh, once this project with Italy reaches its its natural conclusion, but you know, I think at the moment there's certainly a, a, a great degree of contentment and satisfaction with the job he's done with Italy, starting from a very low base because it couldn't really have been any lower after um, they failed to reach the World Cup for the first time in, since 1958. As uh, as Jack said, James, he he was always you always kind of he he was always an interesting character for the media here to deal with uh, he was always ready to to kind of get in the faces of opposition managers um is that a, a kind of attitude that is going well for him at the moment as well well what i loved about mancini and you hear this um whenever an english ma- an italian manager goes to to coach in in england is that it civilizes you um that you become um, less aggressive, less temperamental. You know, you can control your emotions more because that's 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 just the general atmosphere and environment that English football brings compared with Italy. There's less poison. Um, you know, be it, for example, the suspicion around the referees, um, be it the kind of uh, the things you just see in the stands and on the terraces. There just seems to be uh, more banter, less 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 abuse. Um, in the, the, the minds of Italians who I think go there and start out in the touchline uh, on the touchline in the technical area, not really understanding what is being shouted at them and what's being hurled at them, they just think it's a much more pleasant environment um, uh, to work in. Um, but look, I mean, he's always had that reputation as being a firebrand, as, as being someone who um, kicks off very, very easily. It was something that was that certainly distinguished his his playing career um the amount of times he he went after referees um some of the comments he made you know sort of will will set the ultras on you and things like that didn't really um didn't really play well and he had to he had to learn to control his emotions but i think yeah he's he's despite cutting this kind of this this uh this figure of this kind of very well-to-do high society gentleman that that he has at the moment he's one of the most stylish and elegant guys on the on the european football circuit um you could certainly you could certainly believe that if it were to kick off in a bar mancini would be right next to you um, (laughs) sort of you know sort of waving a bottle so um so i i and that's just that's just always been who he is. Um, yeah, he's he's got this ferocious, ferocious will to win and to fight for something that he believes in. And if if that's when it was City, he would do whatever it would take to kind of be there, standing by well, not standing by, leading from the front uh, for City's cause. Jack, he um, he promised to tear down that banner at Old Trafford, and uh, and he did. So uh, take me back to that FA Cup uh, final, the one over Stoke. Well. The game that stands out more to me is the semi-final against Manchester United. Um, that semi-final, the one-nil win where Yaya Torre scored, that is genuinely one. So ha- because I wasn't at the Aguero QPR game, that one-nil um, FA Cup semi-final is the best City game I've ever been to. Uh, I, it was incredible, really, because it, that was back when it felt so unlikely going into it that City would win. Like it felt so, you know, United won the Premier League that season. They got to the Champions League final. They were the best team in the country at that point. 
And for City to, to dig out a 1-0 win against them at Wembley, it was just, it was so unprecedented and it felt so unreal. And that, I think, was all down to the, you know, the mentality of Mancini. Like, City City hung in the game. United probably, you know, United played probably better football than them in the first half. Torre took advantage of that mistake by, I think, Vidic and Carrick to make it 1-0. And then City clung on in the second half and dug in really well. And they, there is no way they would have done that under Mark Hughes or with a different manager who didn't have that same kind of mentality and approach to defending and organisation and control that Mancini had. And then the FA Cup final was just kind of the sort of cherry on the cake, really. Like, it always felt, it never felt like City wouldn't win that game, even though it took them a while for Yaya Toure to score the goal. So, yeah, that, that I mean, obviously, like, if City won, I mean, for now, if City win a cup, it, it doesn't really register that much with that many people because they do it all the time. But back, and, you know, we all know that the FA Cup final this year felt like a bit of a farce, or sorry, last season felt like a farce when they battered Watford. But back then, like, City winning the 2011 FA Cup was a huge deal. And it was so, I think, and of course, if they hadn't done it that year, there was no way they would have won the Premier League the following season. So I think for City fans, that is all, that still remains incredibly emotionally powerful. And the reason why City fans still love Mancini. It's funny because I, I look at those, certainly the, the half season he had in uh, that, that year he shared with Mark Hughes, followed by the FA Cup winning year and then followed by the title winning year. There were, there were very clear lines of progress, I felt, through, throughout each of his teams. It felt like the handbrake was slowly being pulled off by the time they got to that title winning season. It was off and they were just in full flow. Yeah, completely. And they played, you know, they did play some fantastic football in 2011-12, like the 6-1, the battering Spurs away. They had some really, really good results. And obviously, you know, the form tailed off at the in the middle part of the season. That's why they had to rescue at the end. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that if Manchester United hadn't hadn't lost to Wigan, hadn't drawn with Everton, then United would have won the league that year. And we'd probably be having a slightly different conversation now. Like, who knows whether Mancini could have survived that? But they did. Like, they found a way to do it where nobody else thought they would. And I do think that they, you know, it wasn't just Catanaccio either. Like, they had some fantastically exciting attacking players. Just just watch the clips. Like, Nasri was incredible that year. Davis Silva, Tevez, Aguero, Dzeko. They played some really, really good stuff. And overall, it was like, it probably wasn't as good a team as the City team now, but it certainly felt like a team with an awful lot of personality. Maybe more personality, frankly, than, than the team has under Guardiola. What uh, what what do you think it, it, it what do you think went wrong for him? Did he just fall out with too many people? I think that kind of like abrasive, demanding management style, coupled with kind of quite conservative tactics, does eventually wear players down. Like he did, you know. There's no secret that by 2012-13, the players were fed up with him. And I think that's I think ultimately that's inevitable. And it's, it's interesting. I remember hearing from from someone who would know that one of the reasons why. They sacked they sacked Mancini and brought in Pellegrini in 2013 was because they wanted to get more out of players like Jacko, like players who you know the city the club had spent good money on and they knew were good players, but who looked a little bit worn down and unhappy by Mancini by the end. And they thought you know we, we've invested all this money, we want someone who can be more relaxed, more amenable, less demanding, more positive, and that's why they went for Pellegrini after Mancini. Um, and it, you know, and it, and it worked because City again played some fantastic football in thirteen, fourteen, and won the Premier League. But I do think that that kind of managerial approach that Mancini had, while it was absolutely right for December two thousand and nine and the following few years, and it was integral to what City have done, it was never going to last forever. And eventually, after a manager that demanding, the players are going to want somebody a bit more relaxed. James, uh, do, you, do you do you think we'll ever see him back at the Etihad? Do you think he'll uh, he'll, he'll end up back in club management at some point? Uh, yes, um, I, I find it difficult to see um, yeah, Mancini retiring um, anytime soon, um, just because, as I mentioned, yeah, he's still at a young stage of his career. And I think he would like to come back to the Premier League in just the same way that Ancelotti has come back to the Premier League. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, this might come, come, come across as, as, as new to, to English readers or it's kind of strange, but... There is this reverence for the for the Premier League as being like the NBA in, in in basketball. It's the place to be. It's the place where if you if you want to really kind of add um, to your reputation and be in a place where everybody is watching and prove yourself, there's no there's no better place. There's no bigger stage um, to do it. So 
you know, I think that would be that would all, that would always be an opportunity, an option that he would continue um, to to seek out and to to consider. Um, but certainly, I think at the moment with it with Italy, um, he feels that he's got unfinished business from his his time as a player. Where you know, for someone of his talent, um, never had the international career that he he should have had and would have had with another country or in other circumstances um, with Italy. So I think at the moment, this is this is his dream job. This is somewhere where he always wanted to be and perhaps felt he might not get there after the, the few years that he had at City where he goes to Galatasaray, Zenit, St. Petersburg, a bad inter-team. And this opportunity might never have presented itself. So I think once once he feels that he's taken this Italy side as far as he can, um, and if it if it enhances his reputation and gets people talking about him again, you know, were he to win a European championship or do something in the World Cup, then you know, I think then we might be looking at uh, a conversation where Mancini comes back uh, into contention for top clubs around uh, around Europe, including in the Premier League. Now, uh, Jack, just to finish, uh, a nice little bit of trivia for you. Did you know that uh, Roberto Mancini is the last City manager to have also played at Main Road? No, I didn't know that. When <laughs> when when did he play at Main Road? Uh, he played for Italy B in uh, in an wow. international. Um, at, uh, that was that was staged at Main Road. If you'd asked me that, like in a, wow. in a if if if, I, if I'd been doing a pub quiz and that had been a question, I'd have said Joe Royal, and. <laughs> Uh, is that or, wait, or maybe no? Wait a second. Maybe Mark, Mark I, Hughes I would have. Yeah. Steve Koppel. No, Mark Hughes, of course. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was actually Mancini. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, obviously you Mark Hughes. Down would have, there, Jack. Mark Hughes <laughs> would have been the obvious answer. God, good job. The yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to be going to a pub quiz anytime soon. But, uh, <laughs> good, job, good job, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, next time, yeah. Wow, that's really good. That one. You should put that. Yeah. Is that like well known? You should put that on Twitter. I, f- I found it. I was looking for. I can't remember what I was looking for. I was trolling soccer bases. You do, you know, when you on your downtime or something like that. And um, I was just looking at, at, at kind of uh, matches that have been played at Main Road. And Italy B came up, and the team was there, and there was an R Mancini up front. And I thought, it, 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 I mean, come on. And then I, so I pressed it, and it went straight through to his profile. Amazing. We should do, we should do an athletic story about that game. <laughs> go, go for it I'll, uh, I'll send you the details when we finish <laughs> right uh, well that's it for this week's Why Always Us you've been listening to Jack Pitbrook thanks Jack thanks and James Horncastle thanks James a pleasure and to me David Mooney we'll still be making Why Always Us during the enforced break and there'll be plenty of Manchester City articles going up on The Athletic during this time too for that and for ad-free podcasts make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app you can get a 40% discount now by using the code MANCITYPOD Thank you.